This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Anyway, as we get started, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll give you a little introduction, and then we'll get started, okay? Father, thank you for the time that we can spend together uh, looking at uh, marriage and looking at it from cultural perspectives as well as biblical perspectives. Pray that you would be our teacher today, guide our thinking, guide our minds, and refine it so that we are sharp in our biblical understanding and able to relate to those around us, giving a biblical worldview so that they will be able to honor you in, the, in their relationships. Pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my name is Hal Hayes. I come from California. Uh, please don't uh, uh, judge me too much for being on the left coast, uh, but uh, I have made it here, and so I appreciate North Carolina. Yeah, we're, we're working fine now. Okay. Yeah, we got it working. Thanks, Hal. Sure. His name is Hal. My name is Hal. That's the one thing we have in common. Uh, I've been married for 47 years, so I have a little experience. Uh, married uh, to my first wife for 47 years and my only wife. Uh, we have four children. We have 14 grandchildren. And one of my children is here uh, in the Raleigh area ministering. He went to uh, Shepherd's Theological Seminary, and that's really what drew me here five years ago. They asked me to begin speaking, and so I've been doing workshops ever since at the, uh, uh, the Shepherd's 360 conference. So I appreciate being here, appreciate being the, uh, having the opportunity uh, to speak with you. I have a ministry called Encourage Me International. It's an international ministry. I'm domestically based, but I'm on the road five to six months a year. Now, this is all relevant to what we're going to be talking about uh, because uh, my primary ministry is within the Slavic world over in Europe, but that's expanded over into uh, Australia because there's a Slavic population down there. And even at my advanced age, I earned my doctorate uh, within the last two years. And one of the students that I worked with was Vietnamese. There's the Asian connection. And that's where we're bringing the Asian world back into our understanding of marriage. And so I've been over ministering in Vietnam in addition to the Slavic world. In addition to that, uh, I have always been connected with college ministry in our home church back in uh, Southern California, and I have worked on the campuses of UCLA and USC and Pepperdine for 20 years, working with the students there. What is the connection with the Slavic world? Well, when I began ministering at UCLA, my oldest son was a freshman, and they asked me to come down and be senior staff because they want to integrate uh, laity into the lives of the students, especially older students. And when I began ministering down there, the ratio between Asian and Caucasian was 50-50. When I left ministry at UCLA, the Caucasian-Asian ratio was 10-90. It was 90% Asian uh, and 10% Caucasian. And I was shifted over into USC, and it was the same demographics, so 80-20. And at Pepperdine, it was closer to maybe 60-40 in doing ministry over there, but uh, the Asian world has been a part of my life for almost as long as my involvement in the Slavic world. In fact, uh, most of the marriages that I have performed have been Asian weddings that uh, come as a result of ministering with the young people on the campuses at UCLA, USC, and um, uh, Pepperdine. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's tough uh, if you start in ministry at UCLA 
and then you get transitioned over to USC. Uh, there's not a whole lot of love between those two campuses, and so if you mention that you were at UCLA uh, at USC, then they want to hang you on the spot, and of course it's the same way vice versa. Uh, at any rate, uh, that's my background, so uh, even though I'm Caucasian, uh, I have a lot of experience in the Asian world uh, in working with that particular community. So uh, as we begin to look at the cultural worldview or marriage from an Asian perspective, I think it's important for us to get a foundation on the biblical perspective. I've just found over the years in teaching whatever topic it is, that you don't look at what the problem is, you look at what the truth is. And when you look at the truth, then you can begin to see the difference with the counterfeit that's out there. I don't know if you knew this or not, but back in the 30s, when they had a counterfeiting problem, the uh, Treasury Department had their agents trained by just staring every day for a month at a perfect $1 bill or a $100 bill or a $5 bill or a $20 bill. Every day, eight hours a day. Can you imagine just having to study that bill for that long of a period of time? And then at the very end, their test was to throw the good bills in and a bad bill every once in a while. And the guy could, after he's looked at a perfect bill, he's able to see the counterfeit without any difficulties. And I found that to be true in pursuing biblical truth as well. If you want to know what the counterfeit is, study what the truth is first. And I think that's probably one of the difficulties or problems in our society anyway. We don't study the truth enough in order to be able to identify what is false out there. We want to understand what is false first without comparing to what is true. So the thing is, we need to look at what is true and get that picture. So I'm going to be reminding you, because you're all acquainted with the truth, but we need to see it maybe from a different angle or perspective. So when we look at marriage, we've got to remember that marriage is God's idea. I think the modern society thinks that there is no God, and so that wasn't his idea. It's our idea, and this is how we have a well-ordered society, but we're seeing that collapse all around us, aren't we? Because no longer is marriage important. No longer is marriage something that is uh, identified. In California, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the country, but you don't have to be uh, an ordained minister to marry somebody. You don't have to be in the clergy at all. All you have to do is show up. You can have anybody. You could hire somebody off of the street and perform a marriage, and that would be legal in the eyes of the state of California. I think that there are more states around this country that are uh, starting to adopt that same kind of perspective. But California abandoned the idea of uh, sanctity in marriage uh, well over two or three decades ago, and I've been out there for 50 years uh, studying and ministering. Uh, marriage is also sovereignly arranged, and I think this is something that I've grown into over time. I don't know that I really had a perspective that every marriage was sovereignly designed or put together, but as I've thought about God's sovereignty more and more over the years, and I look at certain verses in Scripture, and I'm going to go over those with you, I really believe that whether it's a believer or a non-believer, every marriage is God-ordained. And I think there's a couple of easy reasons to see that that's a true statement. Number one is God hates divorce. That's Malachi 2.16. But we're going to look at uh, Matthew 19, 4 through 6 in just a few minutes. And we're going to see there that I think that there is a very clear statement that marriages are divinely arranged and we shouldn't be tampering and seeing those dissolved in any way. And then uh, thirdly, uh, when you enter into marriage, it's to be an unbroken commitment. Now, I know that you all know this stuff, 
But it's important for us to have that in our mind and to cement that idea in our thinking as we look at marriage and then begin to look culturally at marriages, not only from a biblical perspective, but from an Asian perspective. And hopefully when you see the Asian perspective, you're going to see the comparison with the Caucasian perspective or the Western perspective as well. And I hope this will help you in your own ministries as you deal with those who are in marriage, about to get married, or having crisis in their marriage. All right, so marriage is God's idea. Let me get my Bible. I don't know why I didn't pull it out. It's because I guess I was rushed into this room today. But when we go back and we look at uh, uh, marriage, I think the place to start is looking at Genesis 1. Now, we're going to look very quickly at Genesis 1. And actually, you don't see a whole lot about marriage in Genesis 1. You just see in Genesis 1-1 that God creates the heaven and the earth, right? And then you go through day one, day two, day three, day four, day five of creation. Nothing about marriage there. And then you get to day six. And this is when he creates man. But we don't see marriage in Genesis 1 as well. Because when you look at Genesis 1, you're looking at a general overview of creation. We don't get to see the specifics of creation until Genesis chapter 2. But in Genesis chapter 1, we're establishing a foundation and we're going to build off of that. This is the way God designed it when he used Moses to write down what's going on in the, uh, the creative event. And man is created and people in, generally are, are, in general are created. But when he creates, it's very interesting to see that he created a singular being. He created a man, a male. It looks like the word for mankind in this opening chapter, but we're going to see that it's really going to be a very specific idea that God had when he developed humankind by beginning with just creating the man first and then creating a woman. So then we get into Genesis chapter 2, and then we see the specific description of creation from Moses and from God's perspective. And so we see again in verse 4 of chapter 2 that God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 5 and 6, he looks down, and I would read the text, but when I did this uh, this uh, session yesterday, I almost ran out of time and didn't get to the cultural perspective. So I'm going to go a little bit quicker with you today and not read as much scripture, but just you've got the scriptures up here. You know the, the dialogue anyway. I think you can follow along fairly easily. But he creates the singular man, and in verse 5 and 6, he looks down and he says that there is no man to cultivate the earth. Now, this is no surprise to God. This is just narrative <coughs> to man at this point, letting him try and understand the perspective of God. And we get into verse 7, and so he creates a man to cultivate the earth. But notice he only created one singular individual because when you look at the Hebrew language in here, it's really specific about it being a male. And we see in the context that this singular male is alone and God wants to solve this alone problem. And so we come to verse 15 and he puts the singular man into the garden and he says, I want you to cultivate this garden. And then he takes Adam, a singular man, on a tour of the garden in verse 16 and 17. And he takes him and he says, you can have any of the fruits of any of the trees in this garden except for this one tree. And he takes him to the tree. And he gives him a visual demonstration of his rule. This tree here, you cannot eat the fruit off of that tree. Now think about the rule for just a second because I think this is important for our perspective. If they're not allowed to eat the fruit of the tree, do you think they're prohibited from touching the tree? 
No, they weren't, because the rule was don't eat the fruit off the tree. Could they pick the fruit off of that tree? Yeah, they could pick the fruit off the tree. They could take the fruit and look at it, and they could study it, and they could examine it, and they could praise God for the wonderful creation. They just couldn't eat that fruit. Could they put a swing on one of the branches? And when uh, Adam finally got a mate, could he put that mate on the swing and push her on the swing on that tree? Would have been all right. The rule was don't eat the fruit. It's important for us to see those kind of distinctions because when we look at the rule of God, sometimes we put parameters on things that we shouldn't be putting parameters on. But God's rule was don't eat the fruit off of that tree. Adam was doing okay until he got a wife, until he got his compliment. All right, so then when we go into verse 18, God looks at Adam after he's taken him around the garden, given him the rules on how to live life, and he says, it's not good for you to be alone. But Adam doesn't understand this. So how is God going to educate Adam that singleness and lo is loneliness and is not good? Well, what he does in verse 19 and 20, he shows man every animal that he had created, and he's hoping, he's not hoping, he is educating uh, Adam and showing him that every other animal has two. And one kind of has parts that look like him, and the other has parts that don't look anything like him at all. And he begins to realize something, that while all of the rest of God's creation has a mate, has a companion, and is not lonely in any way, he himself is actually lonely because he doesn't have a complement like the other animals do. So God is going to solve that problem. And what does he do? He puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from him, fashions a woman, and then he takes this woman, and she is waiting there as Adam wakes up, and Adam has a response to uh, what he sees. It's an ecstatic response in the Hebrew, and it's found in verse 23. It says, and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Honestly, I think this is the experience of every man on his wedding night when he takes a look at the compliment that God has given to him. He's ecstatic with the gift, the difference that is there. It's an exciting thing. Adam is excited about what's going on. And uh, we can make some conclusions in it, looking at this, this brief overview of Genesis 1 and 2 that God's concept in marriage is primarily complementarian and not egalitarian. See, Adam is created first, he's created alone, and woman is created out of man. And I think that's going to be an important thing for us to understand as we look at the cultural differences in marriage, and uh, not only from a biblical perspective, but from uh, what we see going on culturally. But it's interesting to see where this egalitarian idea came from. Because when I went through seminary, I heard this. I didn't know it was quoted from Matthew Henry at the time, but uh, it, it, was, it was said that uh, when you perform a wedding, it's a good thing to give uh, to the audience and to the bride and groom this saying that says, a woman was made out of, the, uh, of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And when I read that, I thought, man, that's perfect. i got to put that into my marriage ceremonies. You know, this really communicates uh, an idea of compatibility in there. But there's one thing that sticks out because it's become an issue within the last five to ten years. 
and that's the equality in the creation of man and woman. And what we just looked at in Genesis 1 and 2 is that there is not equality there. There was priority in maleness, and there was a complementary female that came from man. So when we talk about equality, it's not really something that is found in Genesis 1 and 2. It's found somewhere else. It's found in the New Testament. I'm going to show you where that came from in just a minute. But I want to show you that while this is quoted from Matthew Henry's commentary in Genesis, it's not original to Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is a well-known name. Therefore, it has credibility, doesn't it? Matthew Henry took it from a Jewish philosopher. His name was Isaac Abern, uh, Abarbanel. And what he said was Chava was not created, and Chava is the Hebrew word for Eve. Eve was not created from Adam's foot so that he would not consider her a lowly maidservant, nor from his head so that she would lord it over him. Rather, she was created from his side so that she would be equal to him. That idea of equality uh, came from a rabbi. And if you'll notice the dates on there, this rabbi existed about 100 to 150 years before Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry then took this idea from the Jewish philosophers and expanded upon what this guy said, but the lasting influence has been this idea of equality between husband and wife, man and woman, ever since in Christian circles. And now we have a problem in our society. We've got the war between the complementarians and the egalitarians. And the egalitarians think that they're right because they're looking in the New Testament but the complementarians are saying, no, we're right because we're going back to the very beginning and looking at Genesis 1 and 2. And that the bridge between the two really happened with Matthew Henry in the 1500s during the time of the Reformation. All right, so as we go on now, then we want to begin to look at what is a successful marriage. And we have to be uh, committed then, I think, in a successful marriage to fulfilling God's ordained roles. Well, what's God's ordained role? You're going to find that in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. These are God's ordained roles. He establishes the way a marriage relationship should look. And when we look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, you're going to see that Christ is described as being head of his church. And when you look at Ephesians 5, 23, it says that marriage is a model of the relationship between Christ and his church. How so is it a, a model between Christ and his church? Well, if we get into Ephesians 5.23, and my older fingers are slowly getting there, we'll find as we read, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. What is the model in marriage? The relationship of Christ to his church. He's the head over the church. The husband is the head over the wife. And so we have this downward uh, arrow that says there is a leader, Christ, and that the church is supposed to be following him. All right? Now, when we talk about marriage, First Peter says something kind of interesting because he shows egalitarianism, not in the marriage relationship, but in the salvation experience. Okay, so when you get into First Peter chapter 3, he says, and he describes the husband-wife relationship in this way, he says, you husbands... Likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker, weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and honor her as what? The fellow heir of the grace of life. Now she's equal. Not equal in responsibility or in roles in marriage. 
but equal in salvation. There is no difference between man and woman or Jew and non-Jew in the kingdom of God. There is complete equality. But when it comes to the marriage relationship, there is a line of demarcation. And so when you come back into Ephesians 5.24, you see again the reiteration of what is said in uh, Ephesians 5.23, that the husband is the role leader in the relationship and uh, in the same way that Christ is the leader in the relationship with the church. It says in verse uh, 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Boy, that's a hard role for a woman to have to uh, take on. I, and I, you know, I pity my wife in some ways. She's got me as a husband. And I've made lots of mistakes over the years. And, you know, she has uh, challenged those sometimes more than she should have. But I should have listened more often to what she has to say. But ultimately, what Paul is teaching is that a man has the responsibility to make the final decision, whether it's good or bad, and live with that decision. And then if he is wrong, he needs to have the humility to go back and he needs to say, I'm wrong. I made a mistake. I've had to do that several times. I think that's what kept our marriage together for 47 years, is being able to say, I'm sorry every once in a while, please forgive me for the decisions that I've made. Of course, at the same time, I have to look at myself in the same way that Adam should have looked at his self, himself. Because when you look at the fall of man, Eve is the one who takes the fruit first, right? And she's the one that bears the blame for sinning according to what I see in the text. But man gets the blame. Why does man get the blame for Eve's sin? It's because when you look at the context, you see that he's right there watching Eve take that bite, and he doesn't stop her. There is the failure of man, even in modern day marriages, not to step in when he should and overrule his wife to do what is right. Sometimes a man steps in and he overrules his wife to the wrong and the harm of the family. But then again, we, as those who are servants of Christ, we have confession and repentance and an opportunity to rectify that situation. But you know, every time a man steps aside from doing what he should do and stepping in and being the leader, he really is doing the same sin as Adam back in the very beginning in allowing Eve to take that fruit whatever it was, I almost said apple because that's cultural, but uh, that fruit and uh, allowing her to take that without stopping her and saying, no, God said, don't do that at all. So guys, we, we need to be more responsible. Anyway, this is the picture. This is the model for a marriage. Now, unfortunately, our culture has gotten away from this. We've seen this in non-Christian environments where it's more egalitarian, where they take the salvation model and they put that into a marriage relationship model. But the real model is a husband over a wife doesn't mean that the wife can't speak and cannot share uh, her ideas and her thoughts. It just means that the man has the final responsibility of the decision-making. I'm in several counseling situations back in the United States, back in California right now, and uh, the problem has been that the wife is unwilling to allow her husband to make any more mistakes. And so she wants to overrule him at every turn. Now the men, to their credit, 
have been changing and they are now making wiser biblical decisions, but the wives are gun shy and they don't want to follow what he has to say. And it's hindering the relationship. Fortunately, it's taken three or four years in some cases, we're finally seeing the wife begin to say, okay, I think I can yield in this and trust the Lord a little bit more by trusting my husband. That's a hard process because ever since the 1960s, and I am old enough that I have experienced the feminist uh, movement in its awakening in the 1960s, we've seen women take more and more authority and responsibility away from their husbands, away from their mates to the detriment of the family and to the detriment of the relationship. Now, I've seen this most graphically in the Slavic world and even in the Asian world that's influenced by communism because under communism, egalitarianism is the rule of the day. And in most cases, women rise above men in uh, power and authority, not in government services, but in the home and in other areas because the man basically backs out of the picture anymore and doesn't want to be involved and by default, the woman has to take over in raising the family, raising the children, because the man has been emasculated because he doesn't have a role anymore in egalitarianism. And the woman then is going to rise and fill that leadership vacuum. We've got to get out of that model. And that's why I'm showing you these models right now, because we need to get the biblical model firmly set in our mind so that we don't operate on egalitarian rules, but on complementary rules with the man taking the leadership in there. So we've got to think about this and we've got to look at how that works into all our decision making and into all the roles that we make. Now I said <coughs> that I was gonna take you and show you how God arranges sovereignly all marriages. And I wanna take us to Matthew 19, verses four through six, uh, very quickly. Um, Remember the question in verse 3 is coming from a Pharisee who says and asks Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? So that's our context. What about divorce? But the answer is very interesting in verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting out of Genesis 2.24. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says, And said, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, that's Genesis 2.24. So what is Jesus doing? He's appealing to Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture authority from the very beginning. He's looking at the creation model, and he's seeing the husband-wife relationship, and he's saying the man was made first, the woman is made second, they are to come together, they are to form one union. And so what is he saying about divorce? He's saying it shouldn't uh, be tampered with. But on top of that, he puts the icing on the cake in verse 6, and he says, consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. But here's the important part. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, did he say, what God has joined together in a Hebrew marriage, let no man separate? Did he say, what God has joined together in a Christian relationship, let no man separate? Not at all. This is a general statement. This is a general statement that all relationships, once they are formed, they need to remain together. And divorce, we find out later on, is something that comes as an accommodation demand under certain circumstances. 
but it is never the final solution into what's going on. So we've got to keep this idea in mind as we pass this on to those whom we're pre-counseling for uh, marriage. Let them know about the divine sovereign relationship that is going on in the way that uh, their relationships are being put together. Now, you would say, uh, well, if they're just engaged, then we don't have a sovereignly arranged marriage yet. Well, you'd be right and wrong in that, and I'm going to show you about that in just a minute. But one way that I know that my marriage is divine, sovereignly arranged is that I'm still married. I got married, I consummated the marriage, and now I am committed. I made a vow before people, I made a vow before God, and I said I was gonna be remain faithful. My wife said the same thing. Now it's too late to back out. We have a divine, sovereignly arranged marriage and we are committed to the very end to following through on the principle of not letting anyone separate us from what God has joined together. See, it, and I, I don't see this in, in the cultures that I minister to, and I really don't see it here in America anymore, and I haven't seen it for a long time. When I went to seminary 40 years ago, divorce rate was two to one. It really hasn't changed that much, except there are fewer marriages because more people are living together now to try it out. And once they try it out and they say after a year or two it's not working out, then they say, hmm, hasta la vista, I'll see you later. I want to show you from Scripture that just because they didn't have that formal ceremony doesn't mean that they weren't married. They should have been together. They should have stayed together, even in that common law setting. All right, so let's look at some interesting relationships in Scripture. So if we go back into Genesis and we look at the relationship that Isaac had with Rebecca, we're going to look at who had the initial, was the initial arranger, who was the final selector, and then we're going to look at the process in each situation. And so when you go through Genesis 24 and we incorporate uh, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, which indicates and implies that Jesus, is, I mean, that God is the, the initial organizer of every relationship that ends in marriage, then we see that God is behind Abraham, who is trying to find a wife for his son Isaac. Did Abraham go back to Haran to find his, the wife for Isaac? No, he didn't. He selected somebody to represent him. He selected the servant. And he said, here's the parameters for the woman that I want you to bring back to be the wife of my son Isaac. It had to be somebody from my family. And so you see how God divinely organized and arranged for the servant to get hooked up with the right family in order to find the right girl, in order to bring that girl back and present her to Isaac. It's very interesting when you go through and watch the progression of that story that the servant comes back with Rebecca, and Rebecca uh, is asking, well, who's that man that's coming out to see us? And the servant says, that's your wife. And Isaac comes in and says, who's this? And the servant says, this is your wife. What happened after that? He took her into the tent and he consummated the marriage right away. Was there a ceremony in there? No. I mean, by our standards, that was a wrong relationship. They did it the wrong way because they didn't have a ceremony to uh, uh, indicate that that was the right thing. But you know what? Isaac and Rebecca stayed together the rest of their lives, didn't they? They recognize that if you consummate that relationship, then there is going to be a, an attachment, a oneness that is going to be lifelong and everlasting. And they were faithful to that. And that is a model for us. It should be a model to those who want to say, I'm going to try this out. Well, if you're going to try this out, 
then you're making a commitment. Just because you don't go before a judge for in a civil ceremony or a pastor in a church ceremony doesn't mean that you're trying out in the eyes of God means that you're not married. You are married. You should uh, honor that physical oneness that comes together. And then when you look at Jacob in uh, Genesis 28, you're going to see God behind the scenes in this one too, arranging and organizing that sovereignly arranged relationship. Because Jacob is directed by his father Isaac to go back to his relatives and find a wife among his relatives. And he goes back there and you see that uh, Isaac directs, but Jacob selects and ultimately is going to uh, remain faithful to not one, but two women in this situation. There's another story that goes along with this on the side where he worked for seven years in order to get Rachel. And then the old switcheroo took place on the day of the marriage. And lo and behold, when he wakes up the next day, and I don't know how you could ever do that, but in that particular situation, Leah is found to be his wife. And now he's got to be committed to her. But Uncle Laban said, such a deal, two for the price of one, except you just got to work another seven years for me. And you can have uh, Rachel as well. But you only need to finish this marriage week with Leah. And then you can continue to have Rachel and Leah as your wives. Now, it's kind of interesting when you follow that narrative even more, because when Jacob leaves the area, he's got two wives and he's got two concubines. And as they leave, Uncle Laban, he's sneaking out of town, but Uncle Laban catches up to him after three days of hard journey. And when you look at the context in there, Uncle Laban says, uh, listen, if you if I find out that you've taken any other women to be your wives beside my two daughters, I'm going to come after you. That's a, that's a violation of the agreement that I made with you. It's kind of interesting that he hearkens to that, even though there's two women in the picture on this. He says, no other women other than my two daughters. Otherwise, you have violated the marriage vows that you gave to me when uh, I gave you my two daughters in marriage in the first place. Now, there's contrast in all this. And that's the, uh, uh, the, the lesson of Esau, because when you look at Esau, even though Esau is the one who is choosing who he wants and embraces who he wants, God is really behind the scenes if I really look at what is going on in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Because if God says, you take a wife, that is a lifelong partner for you. Esau, even though he thought he was in charge, Really, God is allowing that to take place, and so he's divinely and sovereignly allowing that to take place. And the same thing happened in Samson's life in Judges 14. He goes against his parents' wishes. He doesn't marry a Jew. He goes and marries a Philistine. And again, this is going to be God allowing this to happen. Samson thinks he's in control, but God wants those two to stay together once they have committed themselves in that final consummate act. So uh, the interesting thing is, from what I've read in the cultural understanding of biblical marriages, that although initial romance was rare back in those days, it was something that you grew in over time. And that is what happens if you make the commitment. You learn to love the one you're with. I love that song in the 1960s by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It still goes through my mind. Uh, I have to shake it out every once in a while because I know what he really means in that song, and he doesn't have a biblical concept in there, but, you know, it serves as a good reminder for me as somebody with biblical values of the commitment that I made to my wife 47 years ago uh, in marriage. All right, so 
let's let's summarize uh, a little bit more. Let's look at the ceremony itself. And what I'm trying to do is just challenge your idea on the ceremonial uh, authenticity of a relationship. Uh, because I think uh, the real model when you go back is in Genesis 24 when you see Isaac and Rebecca uh, looking at each other and they've decided, yeah, okay, that's all we need. We're, we're married at this point. I'm not trying to negate uh, the responsibility for a, a marriage ceremony uh, in the church or even in the eyes of the government. I think Romans 13 is important at this point because Romans 13 still says, at least in our society, that you need a civil act in order to uh, have a legitimate marriage. And that's really true in the other cultures around the world, whether it's Slavic or in Asian. They all still say a true marriage is something that happens before the civil magistrate. But something happened to me a few years ago when I was asked to marry an Asian couple. They were from Singapore, and they were both living here in the United States because they were both going to school. And they were engaged to each other, and they were going to be married, and they decided to get married here in the United States. Were they married in the eyes of God at that point, before um, uh, a judge? Well, according to the law, yes. But you know what happened? They didn't consummate the marriage until months later. I don't know how they did it. They waited until they got back to Singapore in order to uh, have the official religious ceremony because that was the only one that counted in the minds of the family and uh, the church. Didn't matter that they had the civil ceremony. They had to wait all those months. It was like six months before they went back to Singapore and had the church wedding. And they even had to wait a few more weeks after they got back in order to get the final preparations done before they were final, finally married. Now they're happily married and all of this, but I mean, I don't understand that. I just except the fact that that was their cultural perspective of marriage. But in the biblical time in the format, if you were engaged, and you know this, you were considered to be married. This is the problem that Joseph had when he found out that Mary was pregnant because he had said, we're engaged, we're really, in the eyes of society, we're already married, but we haven't come together yet. How can you be pregnant? In my mind, you've been unfaithful. It's been some other man that has joined himself to you. And so therefore, I'm going to divorce you on the side. And God had to intervene and say, no, no, no. You got it all wrong. You don't understand. This is really me. I'm behind this whole thing. And, and I want you to follow through on this. But when you went through the betrothal, you had a, a thing called a mohar, which was bridal compensation. It's an arrangement that was made with the bridal family. And what you were doing was compensating the family for a loss of the worker. Not only that, but you were giving enough money that if your son reneged on his marriage contract and vows, that when she came home, she would have something to live on because she would be in disgrace in the eyes of society and she wouldn't be able to support herself uh, without having some kind of financial nest egg to fall back on. Now, when you come into the ceremony itself, it was ornate, intriguing, and uh, prolonged. You would go from the groom's house to the bride's house, pick her up, go to the place where you were going to have the ceremony. You would go through another covenant of faithfulness where you're signing uh, a financial agreement with the family and cementing uh, the stability of the future of that woman in case something happened to the man or he divorced her. And then you would have the, the blessing, you'd have the bridal chamber and the hoopah, and then you'd have the proof of virginity, and you'd have the festival. 
All of this is happening on the same day. This is not going to fly in our society, is it? I mean, I, I know that the honeymoon is away from the festivities, right, as far as possible. But as you look at the Genesis account, you see that that activity took place with everybody present, and that was just the beginning of the week. You all waited for the proof of virginity uh, outside of uh, the tent. That had to be embarrassing for the two involved, at least from my perspective, from a Western cultural perspective. So that leads us to the point. Uh, we're going to look at different principles in here, and we're gonna, I'm going to have the scriptural admonitions up there for you. But I want to give you um, the cultural perspective from an Asian perspective uh, in each one of these areas. And uh, I'm sorry, I should have pulled this out ahead of time. Let me uh, get my notes because I've asked several of my fr Asian friends, to uh, most of them I've married, uh, to give me their perspective on this. Because I've made all these observations all the time, but I didn't want to be a Westerner that is uh, just giving you my observation of these things. I wanted to have actual physical proof from an Asian mindset, from the Asian lips on what's happening. So divine origin, this should be something that we establish in our premarital counseling with every one of our uh, um, uh, people who are coming to us for advice. And I think this is based on Genesis 2, 23 and 24. But in the Asian culture, this is largely ignored because it's, it's a, a product of socialism in the Asian societies as well as the Slavic societies at this point, where there is no God out there. And so any attraction is more romantically based and based upon uh, outside external forces rather than a, a divine source. Uh, the other principle that we see from Matthew 19, 4 through 6, is it's a marriage is designed for permanence. But that's largely ignored as well because divorce is something that is uh, freely accepted in an Asian society as well as with a, uh, a Slavic or even a Caucasian society. When we look at Genesis 2, 7 and 18 and 22, we see that God's ordained way is for male leadership in the home. But you're going to find in the Asian, and I'm going to read off some examples for you in just a minute, that it's primarily female dominated. And I found this to be very true in the Slavic cultures in addition to the, uh, the Asian cultures. And I see that as I look around in American society more and more, even in Christian homes. It's more female dominated. It's more matriarchal than it is patriarchal. When we look at this complementarian idea, I think this comes from Genesis 2, 20 through 23. But I see that that's being eroded away in the church today. There's more of an egalitarian model that is creeping in. And I think it's all because we look at the New Testament and look at salvation uh, and the relationship between Christ and his church rather than looking at the appropriate uh, marriage uh, uh, illustrations that we have in Genesis. When we look at uh, this idea of leaving and cleaving in uh, Genesis 2.24, uh, as in more and more societies, but uh, really especially more prominently in the Asian society than in the Slavic society, Parents have difficulty letting go. And I think that's because when you look at the Asian culture, you have this idea of uh, ancestral worship. And so those who are older have more authority and have more respect than those who are younger. And so you, you come underneath the respect of those who are older, supposedly wiser. And then when we look at being God-centered, and this I don't find in Genesis at all. I just, I'm using 1 Corinthians 10.31, something that I want every young person 
couple to be married. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do everything to the glory of God. Meaning we need to have a God-centered perspective on the way that we live life. And on top of that, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, you're supposed to be so God-centered that you're thinking more about heaven than you are here on earth. Our lives are supposed to be oriented around bringing glory to God. Now, I want to give you just a few, and I'm already one minute over, but if you will bear with me, just give you personal testimony in a few areas to substantiate what's going on. So I ask uh, my Asian friends, what expectations did your family have about marriage? Well, one of the things that they said was that my wife would be decently educated, at least a bachelor's degree, master's degree preferred. And what I've found in most Asian uh, relationships is that most of the time they were not encouraged to get married until they had already gotten a master's degree and were already two or three years firmly established in a job and had a house and already had a high-powered car. And then they were ready to get married. And until then, the parents frowned on the relationship going any further than it was. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? I found that among some uh, uh, Western uh, cultured individuals as well. Um, okay, uh, this is from the male perspective. My parents acknowledged that they would rather that I marry a pretty Taiwanese non-Christian girl than a Christian non-Taiwanese and average looking girl. So looks were important in certain elements then of the, uh, the Asian culture. Uh, that my wife be very pretty. Uh, there was, and here's the significant part, and this man is a pastor today, but he says there was zero talk about the importance of a girl's and a wife's character, godliness, faith, walk with God, etc. Which tells me that somebody didn't do their job in that household of getting a God-centered orientation uh, in their life. Um, boy, I could read a whole lot more. I probably should have spent more time on this. Uh, what are the continuing expectations after marriage? And I'll close on this so that you can get to your next uh, class. Asian parents assume the authority to dictate how their children raise their children, whether their children should have more children, etc. My understanding is that this stems from the historic Chinese ideal of four generations under one roof in which a man's children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren all live with him on his estate. That man controls everything, dictates everything, etc. for everyone. That's an interesting perspective. That doesn't fly in, an, uh, in a Caucasian society. I know that when I left the house to go to college, I felt I was on my own and making my own decisions. My dad wasn't supporting me. I had to try and find my own way in this society. Not true in the Asian culture. And it's not true in many other cultures. Uh, around the world as well. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to go um, and give you one other thing. Uh, how did you and your, uh, how did you and are you continuing to deal with the challenge of meeting biblical expectations virtual versus cultural expectations in your marriage? Here's the answer. Interestingly, one of the disagreements I had with my mother was the idea of submission of a wife and the wife's role at home. See, this is a matriarchal ruled society and it comes out in everything. And I saw this over and over again in the Asian culture. Okay, I know I'm over time. If you want to ask questions, you can. Just a question. Yes, but don't leave without picking up this free handout from Grace to You, John MacArthur's ministry on mutual submission in marriage.
I think this is really helpful. But yes. Of course, the notes that you have, that you, the anecdotes that you write, yes. if those would be available to us somehow. If you give me uh, an email address, I'm happy to give that to you. Uh, but I've got plenty of uh, handouts for you, and I'd, I'd love for you to take one of these. Thanks for spending some time with me, and uh, uh, if you have any other questions, just come up and give me a, a buzz. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.